0: But everybody needs some paperwork, two sheets, four pages, that we'll be looking at in this hour, and we'll be continuing our series, the title of which is in the upper right-hand corner of that paperwork you have, Side by Side. I'll remind you of what that is, but I remind you of just one announcement that I've been beating on the last few weeks, and that is regarding our August 10 through 13 family camp. We need to know who is planning to go. Or, if you don't know that, if you just want information about it, if you're interested, we we need to know that. So either way, let the folks at the Resource Center know that's out this back door across the hallway. Let them know today that uh, you're interested or you can pay your deposit today. And then we'll get back to you with some more information about the family camp, which is those four days, August 10 through 13. And also, our midweek program has concluded For our adults, um, we had a 12-week semester for the three adult classes that we had going on. Those all three have uh, concluded as of this last Wednesday. But the kids program is still going for two more Wednesdays. So if you have children in the Community Kids Midweek program, that's still going on this Wednesday. And while you are here, and for anybody else among our adults who would like to attend, We do have an adult class this uh, Wednesday. Uh, It's not part of the semester. It's just uh, an additional class one night where Dr. Combs is going to be explaining the use of some free Bible study software. So if you have interest in that, he'll be leading that class in one of our adult classrooms, or if we have too many people for those, we'll move in here. But that'll be Wednesday night at 7.15. So if you have kids in the program, you'll have something to do. Even if you don't have kids in the program you're welcome to attend that uh, attend that class. Then one week from Wednesday is the last night for everything and that is the Pinewood Derby for the community kids. That night there are no adult classes, uh just the uh, Pinewood Derby. All right, everybody have the paperwork you should have received on the way in. At the top it says our series is side by side. It's a 7 week series and today is the middle week. It's the 4th week of those 7. And this series is about two major things. It's about, one, the fact that we all are in need of help. And then secondly, that we have been called by God, each of us, to one another to give help. So we're people who need help and we are to be helpers. And today we will conclude the first of those two about us being in need of help. And you see at the top of page 10, getting help. From God and from from others. Now, if you don't have the paperwork for the prior three weeks, uh, we either have that at the information center, or if they if they've run out of copies of the prior three weeks, then if you give them your email address, then we can send that to you this week. But that's why it's page ten. We've had nine prior pages for the first three sessions. So today, getting help both from God and from others. At the top of page ten, we say. Suffering feels like our biggest problem and avoiding it like our greatest need. But sin is actually our biggest problem and rescue from it is our greatest need. Now, notice that the word feel is feels is in italics. It's emphasized. Suffering feels that way. So we feel suffering. And because we feel suffering, it feels like The biggest issue that I have is to get out of this suffering, whatever form it it takes. But if you've ever been involved in counseling, you know that those who teach counseling tell you that when someone comes to you for counsel and they tell you what's going on, that's what's called the presentation problem. That is, that's the problem as they're presenting it. And of course, you don't know what's going on in their life until you listen to them talk. And so... They present to you what, from their perspective, is, is taking place. But you also learn very quickly that the presentation problem is rather the real problem. There's what the person says from their perspective is the problem. There's what they're feeling and what they're seeing. But then there's the real and, and deeper problem. And this is all the more acute in our day because in our day, feeling is reality. We are such a feeling-oriented culture that if I feel something, then that's truth. Feeling is truth. Feeling is objective. But of course, feeling by its very nature is subjective. That is, it's something that, that you feel and it may or may not conform to reality. Especially when our emotions are damaged by sin like our Intellect and our will. As personal beings made in the image of God, we have the capacities of mind and will and emotion, of thinking and choosing and and feeling. We have all three of those. But the Bible teaches that every part of the person is tainted by, by sin. Every piece of us, the way we think, the things we choose, and that includes the way we feel. So from a Christian perspective, we should not automatically trust our feelings. And contrary to the culture where feelings are practically deified and certainly cannot be questioned, hey, this is just the way I feel, we say. I'm just telling you how I feel, and for you to refute how someone's feeling is anathema in our culture because feelings just are. But feelings, according to the Bible, aren't reality. It's not that they just are, but rather feelings come from how we think and what our desires are and what our attitudes are. And feelings most definitely can be questioned and most definitely can and should be evaluated. In fact, the Bible commands us to feel in particular ways, which surprises a lot of people because in thinking that feelings just are, I can't just, I can't just have particular feelings or not have particular feelings. They just are. You either got them or you don't, we think. So the presentation problem is rarely the real problem. What someone is presenting as the problem is very often what they're they're feeling, but our our feelings are notoriously unreliable. So that being the case, if I, as the subject, and my subjective feelings are not reliable, especially in a fallen world and my struggle with sin, if that's the case, what do I need? Well, I need something and someone to diagnose me from outside of me. I need something and someone to diagnose what's going on with me that's outside of me because I'm unreliable. The truth is, as I judge myself, I've got the whole feeling issue that I've talked about, but I also have the bias issue, the prejudice issue. I'm always biased and prejudiced toward me. I'm a big fan of me. And you're a big fan of you. So when you think about what's going on with you, you're always better than you really are. That's our tendency, anyway. So we need something and someone outside of us to diagnose now what would that something be the something would be the Word of God the Bible the Bible because it is God's Word has the ability to diagnose us as no other external thing can and Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that Hebrews 4:12 that the Word of God is alive and active and and sharper than any double-edged sword and it says it has the ability to discern and judge the thoughts and intents of the heart the bible has the ability to do that the bible has the ability to diagnose you in ways that you can't so you need something you need you need the bible but you also need others you need uh, someone or some ones and again, the book of Hebrews speaks to this. Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Here's what it says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has this. It's a summons to us to help each other not get there. See to it that nobody goes in that direction of a sinful, unbelieving heart. But, verse 13, encourage one another. And as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So do you see there that this is a call to us collectively to gang up on one another To help each other from developing this sinful, unbelieving heart and becoming hardened by sins. And notice the phrase in verse 13, sins, deceitfulness. So sin is deceitful. That explains, goes a long way in explaining why the presentation problem is rarely the real problem. Because we've been deceived and we've got the bias problem toward ourselves and all of that. And it's the word of God and the aid of other brothers and sisters who love us, who can help us see ourselves clearly. So top of page 10, suffering feels like our biggest problem and avoiding it like our greatest need. But sin is actually our biggest problem. And rescue from it is our greatest need. And there is a link, next paragraph, between the two. Suffering exposes the sin in our hearts in a way that few things can. When our lives are trouble-free, we can confuse personal satisfaction for faith. We can think that God is good and that we are pleased with Him, though we might be pleased less with Him than we are with the ease of our lives. Then when life is hard, especially when life remains hard, the allegiances of our hearts become more apparent. Suffering will reveal sin that so easily entangles according to Hebrews 12:1 and that sin weighs a lot suffering top of top of that paragraph exposes the sin in our hearts in a way that few things can friends please get this that circumstances do not create sin circumstances do not create sin Circumstances provide the opportunity to reveal the sin that's in our hearts. The temptation does not create the sin. The temptation that may come in the form of a relationship or hard circumstance. That doesn't create the sin. It provides the opportunity for the sin that's already there to be exposed. And if you'll get that, just that. It will help you immensely in avoiding focusing upon the thing that's going on in my life as the cause of what's happening in my life. Instead, that thing or that person, that circumstance is revealing things about us. And that's what's being said in that top line of that paragraph. When life is hard, and especially when life remains hard, when it's hard over a period of time, all of us go through stuff for short periods, and we handle that, but what about if I've got an intractable issue? Something that's imposed on me from the outside uh, by someone or something, a diagnosis, a, a job problem, a relationship, my spouse just won't cooperate, and I want to live for, let's assume you want to live a godly life, and your spouse is not only not helping you, they're, they're hindering you. You've got that And that's going to be over a long period of time. And so then the allegiances of our heart become more apparent. Suffering will reveal sin that, quote, so easily entangles, says Hebrews 12.1. You remember Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 about what we call Faith's Hall of Fame. And it lists all of these people that God used in Marvelous ways, because they believed, because of their faith. But then, last, we think that these are the people we should actually look to. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we are surrounded by such a great company of testimonies, that's what that's saying. It's not saying, and you may have heard this preached, that you've got the people listed in chapter 11 up in heaven and they're looking down at you and they're cheering you on. Now, here's why I know that's not the deal. Because if in heaven you get a peek down here, it can't be heaven. Okay, I mean, I love you all, but when I get to heaven, we're done, all right? You're on your own. If I'm in heaven, I'm not looking down here. In the fallen world and all that's going on with it. But rather, this, that word witnesses is the word for testimonies. We've got these testimonies from this great company of those who have gone before us. And since we know that this can be done, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not fixing our eyes on Moses or Noah or anybody else. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So anything they did, they did through Jesus. is what it's saying. They did through God. So therefore, we look to, we look to Jesus. But we've got this race to run. And in order to run it, we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now everything that, everything that, that hinders. You some of you memorize this verse with the translation uh, the sin that so easily besets us um, and weighs us and it weighs us down. Well the word for that, the Greek word in that verse is onkos. We get our English word oncology from it. And it means a growth, a mass. And sin is being compared to a mass, a growth that needs to be laid aside, that needs to be excised and removed so that we can run the race that has been marked out for us. And notice the last phrase of verse 1, it has been marked out for us. The race that you're running and the stuff that's involved in the race has been marked out for you. But in order for you to run it as God designs, you have to excise the mass of sin and what so easily entangles us. And the idea there is we're running, and back in their day they've got they've got robes, they've got these ties that go around them, and those can easily entangle the feet if they're not if they're not secured properly. So everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And I just want to point out one last thing about that verse, Hebrews 12.1. It says, the sin that so easily entangles. The sin. And I, along with other commentators, not least S. Lewis Johnson, if you know who he is, uh, believe that the sin, the sin that so easily entangles in the in the context of the letter to the Hebrews is unbelief. That the sin that so easily entangles us is the sin of unbelief. Failure to believe God. And I'm convinced, friends, that failure to believe is the sin that's behind the sin. That is, there's the sins that we commit, but behind the sins that we commit is the sin of unbelief. I mean you think about you think about the sins. That we commit with our mouths and in our actions and in our attitudes. And each one of those can be traced back to some form of failure to believe God, His promises, His goodness, His character. And if you have the if you're if you're involved in the sin of joylessness, so let's talk about the emotions for a little bit and all that. Does the Bible command you to be joyful? Well, as a matter of fact, it does. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, and I will say it again. Rejoice. But if you're committing the sin of joylessness, you don't have joy in your life because of the stuff that's going on, because of the people that are in your life. That's the race that's marked out for you. And yet... You have a lack of joy, disobeying God with this this joylessness. Now, what's the unbelief behind that? The unbelief behind that, it could be a number of things, including that God is good. I don't believe that God is good if I fail to have joy in the midst even of difficult circumstances. Or I don't believe that God is omnipotent and sovereign and that he knows what he's doing in the midst of all of that. So behind all of these things there is lurking the sin of unbelief failing to believe something about God and his promises and his character. Third paragraph there we don't always like to look at it but this burden needs to be dealt with. Sin is the heaviest of weights. Forgiveness is the greatest deliverance deliverance. So in order for us to get help we've got to see the weight. That is the sin that is bogging us down in the race that's been marked out for us. We say there are only people who know they have burdens can be delivered from them. Sadly, the method for that deliverance, confession, has been tarnished. Now, let me just stop there and remind you as to what confession is. One of the words that's translated confession in your New Testament means literally this. Confession. Say the same thing. That's that's what the Greek word means. It's a compound that means to say the same thing. So when I confess sin, I'm saying the same thing about it that God does. That's what confession is. I'm saying it. Confession involves saying, but not saying it the way we normally say it. We say it the way we see it. And the way we see it is often tainted, a la what we just talked about. Our feelings, our distorted judgment about ourselves. So what we say is tainted by that distorted perspective. And yet God tells us in his word about the things that we think and say and do and the attitudes and desires that give rise to them. And we need to say about those things the same thing that God says about it. So as an example, are you a person who grumbles? Don't raise your hand. Are you a person who grumbles? Are you a person who complains? Now, you know, you, you just think that's a garden variety sin. It's not really that big a deal. You know, I mean, in the, in the pantheon of sins, complaining and grumbling. If that's the worst I do, come on. Okay? But God thinks it's a really big deal. Did you know that? Like a really big deal. Because it expresses something deeper. It expresses some unbelief about the character of God. Now, I just want you to, we'll come back to page one here. But take a look at, or, or page ten, Come look at page eleven. Top of page 11. The top of page 11 throughout biblical history, God has graciously let his people see the realities of their hearts. When he liberated his people from Egypt and he led them into the desert on the way to a fruitful land. The people grumbled against Moses and Aaron wondering as many of us would why they were being taken out of Egypt only to face other hardships in the desert. So, you know, those of us in leadership, we love this passage. Because it's, you know, look, you got your leaders, stop grumbling, okay? But you can see, and I I can certainly see myself doing the same thing. You know, you got your leaders, they're leading you out into the desert, and you're going, we need a new election here. This doesn't look to be the, the right way to go, and it should be obvious to anyone. But Moses saw it clearly, next paragraph there. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, no one had said a word against God, but in reality, they all had. And the Lord himself responded to Moses by exposing the truth. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Now, do you see what God is saying is behind the grumbling? is failure to believe in me. It's a complaint about my character. That's what's behind it. Philippians chapter two and verse fourteen. Okay, because that's you know the Old Testament, that's the book of Numbers. And we have a tendency to kind of blow that off. I mean that was those people back then. Philippians two fourteen, quote, do everything without complaining. Yikes, that's a command in your New Testament. Do everything without complaining. A command that is to to be obeyed. So page 11 again. All they did was a little grumbling during a challenging day. And the New Testament letter from James follows up on this insight. In James chapter 4, James takes us from things that are obvious, such as disputes and quarrels in that chapter, and then he moves to things that are less obvious, like our out-of-control desires and demands, our friendship with both the world and the devil, and strong language here, but our hatred toward God, at least in in those moments. What has seemed like a perfectly good reason to get ticked off as someone becomes a time for the Spirit to take us into depths we could not see without Him. It's important to keep that understanding of our hearts in mind. Bad behaviors, even those that are culturally acceptable. You guys see that? Even those that are culturally acceptable. In the culture at large, and let me add, in the culture of the church. There are sins that are acceptable, unfortunately, in the culture of the church. I mean, there are sins that just are completely unacceptable. Drunkenness is unacceptable. Sexual sin is unacceptable. we got a list of things that are unacceptable. You commit those sins, you'll find out they're unacceptable. You want to grumble and complain? We're good. Yeah, we do that here. Yeah, we're about that. Culturally acceptable. So bad behaviors, even those that are culturally acceptable, like a little grumbling our expressions of our spiritual allegiances. Through confession, we invite God's spotlight on those uneven and divided allegiances. So we say the same thing about it that God says. That's what confession is. We don't let the culture define for us what our sin is. We let God define it. Now if you go back to page 10. middle of page 10 second paragraph under see the weight so though it is true that sin itself is not good to see our sin is good whereas sin leads down a burden filled path Jesus said I came that they may have life and have it abundantly and confession is essential to that life so sin's not good but Seeing my sin, you seeing your sin, that's very good. We're going to go on. Ask yourself, do I believe that? Ask yourself, do I believe that it is good for me to have my sin exposed? And answer that to yourself. Is that a good thing? Well, the answer ought to be yes. Because now having seen it, Having seen it from God's word, having seen it, been shown it from perhaps a brother or sister. Okay, so a minute ago, some of you in your hearts, you said, yeah, it is good for me to see my sin. Oh, somebody else might point out what it is. Okay, well, then I can do without it. You know, but this issue is so important for our spiritual growth, absolutely essential for our spiritual growth. That if a brother or sister loves us enough to say, have you thought about this? This is what I'm seeing. This is what's going on in your life. We ought to value that. Middle of page 10 then. To see our sin is good. Sin leads us down a burden-filled path, but Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Confession is essential to that. And seeing the weight of our sin then brings some blessings. One, seeing the weight of our sin drives us to Jesus. And What am I going to do about this lifelong habit that I have had of thinking in a particular way and looking at people in a particular way and looking at myself and my circumstances in a particular way? How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to stop have that transformed? And the truth is you're going to need someone outside of yourself. That someone is ultimately Jesus. It drives us to Jesus, but it drives us to Jesus in another way. And that is that... One of the the root sins for the sins we commit, I've already mentioned that unbelief is at the root, but one of the root sins is the way we see ourselves, the way we view ourselves. And the way Jesus corrects that is, in the Bible, it teaches us that when we are attached to Christ, when we're united to Christ, when we have a relationship with him, Our identity is now found in him. Not in the other stuff that we've been carrying around. Now, what are the things that people find their identity in? They find their identity in accomplishments. They find their identity in acceptance from other people. That acceptance may come via intellect, may come via looks, may come via money. But they're finding their identity and their worth in that stuff. But the gospel tells us that we find our identity in Jesus. Jesus tells me, and my relationship with Jesus tells me who I am. Not all that other stuff. And so if I see that that clearly, then I'm able to deal with the struggles that I have by way of sinful desires, thoughts, words, and and actions, I'll be able to face it, or to put it another way, I've said it this way a lot. Some of you have counseled with me and I've told you this. You don't have to cover it because Jesus has covered it. You don't have to keep covering it because Jesus' blood has covered it. So now I can deal with it. Now I can be honest about it. Because of my identity in Christ. Seeing the weight of sin drives us to Jesus. Number two, seeing the weight of our sin brings humility. It both brings humility and we could add there it requires humility. Because if I don't have a modicum of humility, I won't be willing to look at my sin initially at all. So it requires humility and then it brings further humility as I see more and more about myself And then seeing the weight of our sin is the beginning of power and confidence. It's the beginning of power and confidence as the Bible describes it. One of the reasons that we aren't willing to confess and deal with our sin is because we define power and confidence the way the world does. But as you look at what the Bible says, it defines power and confidence completely differently than that. The power that you have to live the Christian life is not in yourself, it's in Christ. One, the world would say, no, you're a self-made man or woman. You do it. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And the confidence that, that you have is not in yourself, but rather in the God who has spoken and the God who has entered human history and done what Christ has done for us. So lay that weight down, bottom of page 10. To lay the weight of sin down means looking more carefully at our hearts. Though we don't always realize it, all sin is personal. It's against God. It's against God and his, notice the word there, character. and That's why I said before, I won't belabor it anymore, but behind sin is the sin of failing to believe something about God and his character. Our sin says, I want my independence. I don't want to be associated with you. I want more than you can offer me. I know what is best for me, or, and this is scary, I hate you, but that's James 4. We don't, always know, we don't always know we're saying these things, but it's the nature of the heart. There is more going on than what we see. So, if you look at the middle of page 11, seek help from the Lord. Real life begins with help, I need Jesus. From a biblical standpoint, that's where it begins. And so, where do you where do you go if one of your sins is worry? I, I, every time I, I talk about worry, I like to just let it hang out there because worry is one of those almost universal sins. And here's what the Bible says: you see it there, Philippians four. Two verses after it is said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Then in verse 6 it says, Do not be anxious about anything. So don't worry. And Do you remember in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that? Don't worry. Do not worry. Did you all know that the most often repeated command in the Bible, the number one command in the Bible, is do not fear, be not afraid. But if I worry, am I not saying something about the character of God when I worry? Am I not failing to believe something about the character of God? And in fact, when you go back to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, do not worry, and then he gives you a list of things you don't need to worry about. And then he says this, for your father knows that you need them. He immediately attaches it to the father. Because when you worry about that stuff, you're saying something, something bad about the character of the Father. And so do not be anxious about anything, says Philippians 4, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So seek help from the Lord. And then listen to how the Psalms cry out to God. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. The Psalms contain prayer for help in trouble. Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. That same Psalm, a prayer of confession. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reference, serve you. And then the Psalms contain prayers to know the Lord better. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then you pray, Lord, help me to know that about you. That you are this fortress. That you are our strength. So practice praying. And here are just some practical suggestions in the last eight minutes that we have. Every command in Scripture becomes an occasion for confession. Huh. Well, think about that. You're reading through Scripture and you see a command to be or think or do something. That can, that can become a, an occasion for confession, can it? Because the truth is, very often, you're not thinking that way. You're not saying those things. You're not doing those things. And so it's an opportunity For confession that, Lord, I am not doing these things, I'm failing to do these things, or I am not doing them as well as I ought to, to reflect you. So you can practice praying that way. That'll keep you busy praying a lot. Prayer for the sick will include the circumstances of the sick person, but also their soul. Because I see something, I know that there's something behind the obvious. The obvious is, you've got an operation coming up. But the less obvious is you're struggling with that. You're struggling with why is this happening. You're struggling with worry about what's going to happen when they toss me out of the hospital after one day when I really should be there a week. You know how the insurance thing works. Is the insurance going to cover it at all? I'm worried about that. There's all of that kind of stuff happening beyond the physical malady that's being treated. Prayer about our selfish boss will include petition that the boss, yes, will act justly toward me and that we will still be able to work knowing that Jesus himself is our boss. Or that we'll find opportunities to trade kindness for the boss's selfishness. Well, what a great way that would be, right, to think about it. And then the fourth bullet there, it's another example. Prayer for an out-of-control schedule can include confession of wanting to please people. You see, part of the reason I've got an out-of-control schedule, if you have one, may well be that you're always saying yes to everybody because you want to please everybody. And that may need to be confessed. Confession of an obsession with video games. So for you video game enthusiasts, we got you here, okay? Faith to take a weekly rest. Lord, help me to have the belief, the confidence, the faith to take time out now why would you need faith belief to do that because if i miss work how am i going to be supplied for so it takes faith belief to do that did you know when the israelites observed and god commanded to to not do work on the sabbath that that was that required faith to do that to say i'm going to cease from my work and what's going to happen to what's going to happen to Uh, my my business, what's going to happen to my field and so on. And then fourthly grace to focus on what's in front of us as we trust God for things that are not in front of us, for things that are yet to do. Alright, so you're seeking help from God and then seek help from others. Asking people for help makes calling out to the Lord seem easy. The Lord already knows that we're weak and needy but what about other people? That's a different story. They may not know and we desperately want to appear competent before them. Even though spiritual neediness is one of the most attractive acts of a human being, we have our own views of strength, honor, and what's most becoming, and pleas for help are not on that list. But it really should be simple. The Apostle Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, pray for us in multiple places. Apparently, he was no longer embarrassed by his weakness and need. Paul was thoroughly schooled in rejection and humiliation. He was once a noted up-and-coming Pharisee, and then he became nothing. Paul was unconcerned about his own reputation. This is how he was able to ask for prayer. We need to learn to ask for prayer about both circumstances and matters of the heart that sit below the surface for things seen and unseen. So here's how to do that in our closing moments. Put your burdens into words and second, attach words of scripture that capture both your real needs and God's purposes and promises. That is, we pray for what we know our father wants to give us. So here are some examples. First, the burden. I've been so tired. I feel like I'm always a few steps behind on everything. But don't just leave it at that. Attach scripture. Ask a friend, would you pray that I would rest in Jesus? And how's that based on scripture? Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's another example. Top of page 13. First, the burden. This is so hard. Would you pray for healing for my daughter? But don't just leave it at that. Attach scripture. Would you pray for perseverance that I would be able to fix my eyes on things that are not seen? So perseverance through this hardship that remains and that I would be able to see things that the Lord is doing and may do, doing in me, might do in me, doing in her, might do in her. Here's another one. I have been so impatient with my kids recently. I need help. All right, now let me stop there. (laughs) I've been so impatient with my kids lately. And then next it says I need help. Now, if it's the if it's the outside circumstance deal, then that's what's causing me to sin. If that's the way you look at it, rather than it being an inside job. If you look at it as the external circumstance and relationship is what's causing me to sin, then here's the way that would go. I've been so impatient with my kids recently. Will you take them? (laughs) I've been so impatient with my kids lately. Can I get some new ones? Can I trade them in? I heard Garrison Keeler yesterday. Any of you guys ever listened to Prairie Home Companion? Anyway, he was he was talking about how God when kids are born, he's got a soul shoot. He shoots souls out. And a soul attaches to that, to that kid. And he says, uh and he says, and sometimes, you know, God's got a sense of humor. And so sometimes he just gives you somebody else's. <laughs> and then you look at it, and you're wondering, where did this kid come from? Whose kid is this? I've been so impatient with my kids recently, I need help. Attach scripture. Would you pray that I will know Jesus' unlimited patience toward me so that I will pass that on to my children? Wow, what a beautiful thing. My kids need to see the patience of God in me toward them. Would you pray that I will see my anger as my problem and not theirs? I want to see that anger is murder and the problem is that I demand something and I'm not getting what I demand. And you see the references there. One final one. First, the burden. Will you pray that I will find work, attach scripture? And would you pray that I will trust the Lord for manna each day rather than getting swamped by my anxieties? And sometimes our prayer can be very simple and desperate. I feel undone. Would you pray for me? I don't feel that I can pray for myself. I don't even know how to pray. And if you've prayed for someone, you know it's a privilege. Others will feel the same way when you ask them to pray for you. And then lastly, there on page 13, when God gives the help, recognize that. It talks about how in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, they would set monuments up to commemorate how God moved and God worked to supply for them, to remember that. And so, recognize the help when it comes. You know, one very simple way is to thank, of course, God. Thank the Lord first, foremost, and profusely. But then thank those that God has used to help you as well. All right. For the last three weeks of the series, we're going to look at how we are to be helpers. We need help, but we are to be helpers to others. Let's ask God to go with us. Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this Lord's Day. The opportunity to speak with one another, fellowship with each other, encourage one another. But, Lord, in particular, to come together as your people and to lift our voices in praise to you as as one person, as it were, to open your word and to be instructed thereby to sing praise uh, to you. So, Lord, to give back to you all of these things are aspects of worship that you have privileged us to do. Thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. We rejoice and we are glad in it. We ask you now, Lord, to go with us this afternoon. Help us to put into practice the things that we have discussed. And Lord, we ask you to grant us safety this week. Help us to represent you in a way that is pleasing to you in the circumstances you bring our way. And we ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen.